Amen. You can be seated. What is it that we will sing in glory? What is it that we will sing in all eternity? It will not be about what we have done. It will not be about who we are. It will be about the Lamb that was slain, who ransomed us from our evil ways. Let's pray together. Join me in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Gospel. Thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your promises. You are good, You are gracious, and You are kind. Lord, help us not to presume upon Your kindness, but to know that Your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Lord, help us to turn from our wicked ways, to turn from our evil, to turn from our selfishness, to turn from our self-righteousness, and to turn to You, to turn to Your Gospel. God, we thank You that You have promised great things for us, and we look forward to that day in glory when we will sing of this one true Gospel with all Your saints, with all the angels. We say, Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. So as we open Your Word now, Lord, we pray for Your help. We need Your help. We don't want to presume that we can understand Your Word on our own, and so we ask for Your Spirit to illumine our minds and hearts, to understand and and interpret rightly, correctly, in a way that pleases You, in a way that builds up Your church. We believe all Scripture is breathed out from You, and it's profitable for our lives. And so, Lord, would You let it profit us today? Would You let it build us up and train us for all the righteousness that You have called us to? Well, God, I pray for those in this room who are the wicked, who are the unrighteous, who are not trusting in Jesus. I pray that they would turn from their wickedness, turn from their unrighteousness, and be saved by You today. I pray for the self-righteous in this room. God, I pray you would humble us. Help us to see that we have nothing to commend to you. Help us to flee to the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, I pray for all in this room who need to understand and embrace the perfect righteousness of Jesus for them. I pray that you would help us to see it, cling to it, and to be changed by it. God, we thank you for your word. We open it now with this joyful anticipation of you speaking to us, you challenging us, and you letting its weight fall upon us. Lord, help me as I speak these words. Help me to love these, your people. Help me to love these people by preaching your truth, by declaring your word. Help me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what a privilege to open God's Word together this morning. Grab a Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look specifically at Romans 1, verses 24 through 32. But let me start reading in verse 18 so that we can remind ourselves of the context of this passage. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the precious Word of our God. May He help us submit ourselves to it. Well, as you can see, this is a complex and weighty passage of God's Word. There is a lot to unpack here, and there are several cultural landmines that seek to derail us in this passage. But let me start with what is clear, with what I would describe as the burden of this passage. Here's what's clear. This passage teaches that the rampant immorality in the world today is evidence of God's righteous judgment. The immorality in the world today is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. The moral decaying of society provides visible proof in the here and now of the wrath of our God. Listen, there are many texts in the Bible that explain how people deserve judgment and condemnation because of their immorality. Sin requires punishment. It's one of the clearest things taught in Scripture. God is holy and He demands that sin be punished in His holiness. But that's not all this passage is teaching. It is saying something much more than that. This passage teaches that the immorality itself is the current judgment of God. 
immorality and idolatry in the world today and all manner of sexual perversion is evidence that God is holy and and He will pour out His wrath on sin. Three times in this passage, God says, Paul says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up to immorality. Speaking about people who suppress His truth and exchange His glory. Look at verse 26 again. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Look again at verse 26. That was verse 24, excuse me. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so, this passage is teaching that God often responds to our sin by giving us over to more sin. In other words, God releases us to do what we want to do. God removes His restraining grace from our lives so that we might glut ourselves on all manner of things that are contrary to His designs. Now to be clear, God never causes us to sin. God never causes us to sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is what we want. But God judges people by allowing them to plunge deeper and deeper into their sin to show them that their sin can never satisfy them. He gives them up to pursue their unrighteousness without restraints. And the shocking truth when we think about what this text is teaching is that we think we're in control of how far into sin we fall. Right? Most people, even people who consider themselves moral on the outside, are fine with what they consider to be a little bit of sin. After all, we reason, life is short and we need to unwind and have some fun, but we can just pull back whenever we want. We can just stop going down that trail whenever we choose. But this text teaches we aren't in control of how deep we fall in the sin. When the safety cord is snapped, we will plunge headfirst into the darkest unrighteousness unimaginable. And we see this today, don't we? We see this all around us. We know this from what's inside of us. The restraints have not just been loosened, they have been snapped. And we as a society have been given over to what our hearts already desire. We think that's freedom, but this text teaches it is evidence of God's righteous judgments. So with sober minds, let's try to unpack what's here by looking closer at these three God gave them up sections. Three times he tells us God gave them up to something. And so let's look at all of them. And let's look at them remembering that verse 18 told us that the wrath of God is revealed. Literally, it is being continually revealed. That is, it is revealed right now. Yes, one day in full God's wrath will be known, but right now, Paul says, it is in the process of being revealed. And Paul answers the question, how? How is the wrath of God being revealed? Well, here he gives us at least three ways that it's being revealed right now. Number one, God gives people over 
to sexual impurity. God gives people over to sexual impurity. We see this in verses 24 and 25. Notice the therefore at the beginning of verse 24. This connects what Paul is about to say with the fact that we have exchanged the glory of God for idols. Idol worship manifests itself in rampant immorality. Idol worshipers are immoral. Because of the pervasive idolatry in the world, God has given people up, notice, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so this thought of how we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie leads Paul to blurt out this doxology at the end of verse 25. The Creator is forever blessed. The Creator is blessed forever. Amen. The Creator God deserves the highest praise because He has made Himself known. He has made His indivisible attributes known. But the opposite of true worship has happened in our hearts. We have worshipped and served the creature instead of the Creator. That is, we have worshipped and served created things like ourselves and our pleasures and our desires. Paul says this is the essence of all idolatry. Worshipping and serving anything other than the Creator. That is to exchange the truth of God for a lie. That is to deliberately look in the Creator's face and turn away to something else, to some other falsehood. Now, the specific sin that God displays His wrath through in verse 24 is the word impurity. The word impurity in verse 24 carries a specifically sexually impure meaning. It is not just filth in general that God gives people up to, but here Paul is saying the dishonoring of our bodies through perverted sexual impurity. Now evidently there were all kinds of devious sexual impurity going on in Rome when Paul wrote this. You could look at any culture in the history of the world and you will see devious sexual impurity. But it would be hard to argue that any culture is more impure or as sexually impure as ours. We have today all manner of sexual perversion at our fingertips. We no longer have to go down to the brothel or to the temple prostitutes. We can summon whatever we want, whatever our lust and our hearts desire, whenever we want. And the booming pornography industry and the booming escort industry and the booming hookup culture and one night stands are clear evidence that God has given us over. If you doubt that, if you doubt that this verse, verse 24, is true in our culture, just think about one evidence of God giving us over. Consider that the pornography industry in America is a hundred billion dollar a year industry. Pornography makes more, generates more revenue in our country in a year than the NFL 
NBA and MLB combined. We exchange the truth about God. We exchange God's good design for sex for a lie. All manner of sexual distortion. And I'm intentionally being restrained in my language right now because these things are shameful to even think about. Here's what Paul is saying. All manner of sexual impurity is a matter of idolatry. Fornication, sex outside marriage, adultery, pornography, prostitution, etc., etc., etc. is an exchange of God's truth for a lie. It's idol worship. You see, God created lifelong marriage between a man and a woman to be the place where sex is experienced and enjoyed. And God has a good and holy design for sex in the context of Christian marriage, in the context of marriage. But whenever and however we pervert that good design, we trade the truth of God for a lie. We worship the idol of self. We worship worship the idol of pleasure. We worship the idol of being in control and being the captain of our own ship. Paul says, sexual impurity, notice it in verse 24, dishonors our bodies, dishonors our bodies. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul explains this even clearer than I know how to explain it, so let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 13, Paul says this, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says, We were made for the glory of God. We were not made for sexual impurity. And so by God's grace, he says, stop exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Flee sexual immorality. You were made for good and holy pleasures. Pleasures that are far better than the bankrupt pleasures of sexual impurity. The way to fight against those unholy desires, those unholy lusts in our hearts, is to see Jesus as superior pleasure and treasure. Jesus is better than all the temporary pleasures that this world thinks it is enjoying right now. What the world doesn't realize is that God has given them over to the impurity. He is allowing them for a time to have their fill of their desires, but God's wrath will be revealed in full in due time. And so verses 24 and 25 are a warning They're a warning to all idol worshipers. Worship the forever blessed Creator alone. Our idolatry will only lead us deeper and deeper into rebellion against our Creator. 
Here's the second way that we see God give people up. Number two, God gives people over to unnatural passions. God gives people over to unnatural passions. We see this in verses 26 and 27. Look at them again with me. Paul says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So obviously Paul is addressing the sin of homosexuality here. And because this is such a hot-button issue in our day and time, let me mention just a few guiding thoughts for us before we break down what we see here in the text. The first thing I want to mention is to make sure we understand that even though Paul singles out this one sexual sin, Paul is in no way saying this sin is worse than other sins. In just a moment, we're going to see that Paul lists 21 different categories of sin, verses 29 to 31, all of which I believe Paul could single out, and some of them he actually does single out in other places and give them more time. And so the Bible does not teach that homosexuality is a sin any worse than others. But secondly, let me clearly say the Bible does say that homosexuality is a sin. Let's just be clear on that in a confused culture. Even though the Bible doesn't say a lot about homosexuality, what it does say is straightforward. There are at least five clear places in the Bible where homosexuality is labeled as a sin by God. This one right here in Romans 1 is probably the clearest of them all. And so we aren't left to guess how to think about homosexuality from God's perspective. Praise God for giving us His clear word. But third, let me say, in a gathering this size, I know there are people here that have struggled with and still struggle with this sin. And if that's you, I want you to know, I hope you understand that our primary goal this morning is to declare the truth of God's Word. This is simply the next passage in a book we are studying every passage of. We haven't singled this out because of anything going on in the culture, because of anything going on in the world. This isn't a response to anything. This is a proactive seeking to understand what God has said. We just want to know and believe what God has told us so that we can live faithfully in this world. That's our soul motivation. That's my soul motivation. So we aren't mad at you. We don't think you're a worse sinner than anyone else in this room. In fact, let me say, I am the worst sinner I know in this room. I deserve to be given over to my sin. But by God's grace alone, God has saved me by the power of the gospel of Jesus. And so who am I to cast stones at others? I want you to know the redeeming love and power of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. And I want you to worship God as you were designed to do. So with all the love in my heart, I explain and declare these verses because they are the truth of our gracious God. And God's truth is meant to set us free. May He do that now. And so Paul says, notice that God has given them up to dishonorable passions. What are these dishonorable passions? Well, he explains 
verse 26, that women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, that might not be very clear, except that we read the next verse gives us more about what these unnatural relations are, verse 27. Paul says these unnatural relations are turning away from heterosexual relations to homosexual relations. Paul is referring to female-to-female sexual intimacy in verse 26 and male-to-male sexual intimacy in verse 27. And just notice the language that Paul uses about this. He says, these passions are dishonorable. He says, it is an exchanging of natural relations. And he says, it is contrary to nature. And then he says, it is shameless. That is, it is indecent. Now, to be clear on what Paul means by contrary to nature or unnatural relations, Paul means that God has designed sexual relations to be between a married man and woman. That's natural, Paul is saying. That's the natural way that God has made us. This is God's design from the beginning. But Paul is saying homosexuality is not natural. It's contrary to nature. It's not the way God has designed sexual relations. Now, as you can imagine, the main way that people have tried to argue that this text doesn't say what I just explained, what it's saying, is they say Paul means natural to the individual. So they say if someone is heterosexual, homosexuality is unnatural to them. But they say, if someone is a homosexual, homosexuality is not unnatural. It's not contrary to their nature. And so they say, Paul is not saying homosexuality itself is wrong, but rather acting contrary to one's natural sexual orientation is what's wrong. But friends, the text simply won't allow us to interpret it that way, will it? Paul is appealing to creation here. In fact, throughout this text, Paul is echoing the language of Genesis 1 and 2 where God created man and woman and said, be joined together in one flesh. So Paul is not referring to people who turn away from their preferred sexual orientation, but he's referring to women turning away from men to other women and to men giving up their natural desire for women and being consumed with passion for other men. Now, just a side note here. One of the main arguments for homosexuality is that people can't help how they were born. Surely God wouldn't create someone with burning passions for the same sex and then not allow them to act on those desires but expect them to be miserable for all of their life. And one of the responses to that is, friends, all of us are born with sinful desires. None of our natural desires is pure and holy. None of our natural desires is untainted by the fall. We come out of the womb wreaking havoc on this world. And none of us would sit here and argue that someone should act on those unnatural desires to lie or cheat or steal or murder just because they were born with those desires. No, those are unnatural to God's order and thus we must fight against them. Just because someone is born with the desire doesn't mean that desire is holy. And so I think we can affirm 
Yes, we believe people are born that way, born with those desires. We're fine acknowledging that as Christians. But we don't think every desire ought to be acted on. We don't think every desire is holy. And we believe the happiest any person can be is obeying God's will, no matter what desires they have that are contrary to God's will, period. Back to the text. Paul says homosexuality is a sign of God's righteous judgment. This is one of the ways that God has given people over by allowing them to act contrary to the way they should act. And so in Paul's mind, homosexual practice is an illustration, a clear illustration of the idolatrous human impulse to turn away from God's order and design. That's what sin is. Sin is a turning away from what God has said and Paul says homosexual practice is a clear illustration of that. This is how people suppress the truth and exchange the glory of God. So homosexuality is a physical picture of idolatry, turning away from what is natural to what is dishonorable. Homosexual sex is an example on a horizontal level of our vertical rebellion against God. We burn with passion for what is shameless when we exchange the glory of God. And God's response is to give us over. Now, so much more that could be said about that, about these verses. But let me just say before we move on to the third way God has given people over, there is cleansing available in Jesus. There is clean. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, we read it earlier in the service, it lists homosexuality and it lists of various sins like greed and being drunk. And then Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't say not you cleaned yourself up. No, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And so hear this good news. There is cleansing power in Jesus for all idolaters who exchange what is natural for what is dishonorable. There is cleansing power for every idolatry that our sinful hearts invent and make up. Number three, God gives people over to a debased mind. The third way God gives us over is to a debased mind. And so one more time in this passage, Paul says, God gave these idolaters up to their idolatry. In verse 28, notice why he gave them up to a debased mind, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. I'm not sure anything worse could be said about a person. I don't want to be a person who doesn't see it as worth my time, energy, and effort to acknowledge God. As if there are more important things to acknowledge. You just, I can't think of anything worse. That person doesn't even acknowledge God. This seems to be like just the bare minimum of what it means to be a creature. Creatures acknowledge their creator. And they didn't even see fit to acknowledge God. Friends, all of life is about God. And when we fail to acknowledge Him, we dishonor Him as if He is unimportant. And all of us have done that. And all of us continue to do that each and every day. And so fight to acknowledge God in everything you do. If you can't acknowledge God in some activity or action, 
then don't do that thing. You should be able to acknowledge God in everything you do. And verse 28 says, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the word debased here means morally reprehensible. It means despicable. And in verses 29 through 31, Paul lists 21 overlapping sins that come from having a debased mind. It is as if Paul is just throwing in every kind of evil practice as evidence of God's wrath against the unrighteous. And I think Paul could have taken any one of these sins and expanded on him, expanded on them like he did with impurity and homosexuality. Every one of these sins is an illustration of how we exchange the glory of God for a lie in our lives. Every one of these is a picture of unnatural desires. They're not the way it should be. Now, it would be very tempting just to skim over this list, but I think it's at least worth our time to consider each one of these in this list just for a moment, just to evaluate which ones describe us. Paul says the pagan Gentiles are full of these evidences of a debased mind. First, all manner of unrighteousness. So I think this is a summary phrase. Paul's already used this phrase to describe the whole scope of depravity and sin. All manner of unrighteousness. Secondly, evil. This is another summary term for all the ways that we're opposed to God that arise from our allegiance to the evil one. Third, covetousness. Covetousness is an unhealthy desire for what others have. Covetousness is rampant in our culture today, especially on social media. Fourth, malice. This is basic ill will toward others. Fifth, envy. Envy or jealousy is similar to covetousness, but adds the reality of not just wanting what others have, but wanting others to lose what they have that we want. It's the spirit that rejoices when others suffer losses of things that we want for ourselves. Sixth, murder. Jesus said if we hate one another, we commit murder in our hearts. Seventhly, seventh, strife. This is the desire to be contentious and always at odds with others. It's the opposite of a unifying spirit, to be characterized by strife. Eighth, deceit. This is deception, lying. Ninth, maliciousness. The desire to hurt or harm others. Tenth, gossips. This is the desire to harm others' reputations and to make oneself look good in secrets. Eleventh, slanderers, which is similar to gossip, but just more open and public. Twelfth, haters of God. This is the person who wants to be free from God's rules and God's standards. Thirteenth, insolent. It's a rude determination to get your own way, no matter what the cost. Fourteen, haughty. This is the proud and self-righteous person. Fifteen, boastful. This is the proud person who actually brags about themselves. Sixteen, inventors of evil. As if there are not already enough evil things in the world, what do our debased minds do? We make up new evil because we're bored with the old evil. Seventeen, disobedient to parents. Can you believe this isn't a list of evidences of a corrupt mind? that fail to acknowledge God? How do we fail to acknowledge God? We disobey our parents. 
As children and, te- and teenagers, we can often think that disobeying our parents is it's not just really that big a deal. But friends, that it's in this list means it's a big deal. 18th, we're foolish. This is deliberate foolishness. It's being presented with the truth and rejecting it for our own wisdom. 19th, faithless. It refers to people who will not keep their word. They're covenant breakers. 20th, they're heartless. This is lack of compassion for others. And finally, number 21, ruthless, being downright brutally mean. And, the, and then after this list, notice verse 20, I mean verse 32. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those who are disobedient to parents and deceitful deserve to die. All of us deserve to die in our sin. That would be just. And Paul says, we not only practice these things that are deserving of death, but we go one step further. We encourage others to do the same. Sin loves company. And sinners will do anything to get others to join them in their guilt. Friends, take note of what Paul is teaching here. It is sin to approve of sin. It is sin to approve of and encourage sin. Approving of and celebrating sin is itself a sin. And in His wrath, God gives over people to be filled with all manner of unrighteousness that comes from a debased, from a corrupt mind. Now, how should we think about this passage as Christians? As believers in Jesus, as people who have been hidden in Christ, how should we think about this passage. What what is this passage helping us to see? Let me close with three application helps. Help us respond to this whole passage here about the wrath of God against our unrighteousness. First, this passage is a warning to the unrighteous. This passage is a warning to the unrighteous. This passage exists as a huge siren to warn us against turning away from God to anything else. There is blessing and satisfaction when we trust in God. There is brokenness and wrath and death when we exchange God's glory. And this passage is meant to awaken us to all of that so that we would repent for the unrighteousness inside of us, so that we would smash our idols and turn to the one true Creator. This passage is a warning to the unrighteous. But secondly, this passage is a setup for the self-righteous. This passage is a setup for the self-righteous. So this passage at the end of Romans 1 is part of a larger passage that continues all the way through chapter 3. And as we're going to see next week, God willing, in chapter 2, Paul is going to shift in a really clever way. All of this discussion about how they are unrighteous, referring to the pagan Gentiles, is going to set up Paul saying in chapter 2 to the religious Jews And you are no better off. You see, throughout this passage, Paul knows that the Jews are going to be nodding their heads saying, Amen to God's wrath against the unrighteous and the sexually deviant. You can almost hear the religious people saying, Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that. That's so awful about how they do that. That's so bad about how they do. 
And Paul is intentionally drawing out that self-righteousness in our heart, that I'm better than them attitude. In fact, notice chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So evaluate your response to the condemnation of the unrighteous. What does your self-righteousness say about what you believe about your own sinfulness and about the power of the gospel of Jesus? Is your hope really built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness? Or is your hope built on your morality, your purity, and your religious activity? In fact, here's a good test based on this passage. Do you cringe? When you see homosexuality portrayed on a TV commercial or in a movie, but it doesn't bother you at all to listen to and encourage gossip from your friends? Do you scoff at the woman who is pregnant out of wedlock, but don't think twice about being deceitful on your taxes? See, friends, the Pharisee needs the gospel just as much as the tax collector. The older brother needs the gospel just as much as the prodigal son And the legalist needs the good news of Jesus just as much as the hater of God. So who among us is ready to throw the first stone? Self-righteousness is part of the way that we all invent new ways of evil and unrighteousness. So this passage sets us up to check ourselves about what we really believe about our sinfulness and the gospel of Jesus. But third and finally... This passage is preparation. This passage is a preparation to hear of God's perfect righteousness. This passage prepares us so that we can actually allow the gospel to land on us with all of its saving power. We have to read a passage like this in light of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and the revealing of the righteousness we need the righteousness of God is because we are so unrighteous. And so this passage shows us our need for the good news that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin and transfers His perfect righteousness to our account. Listen, as I read and studied this passage this past week, the scariest thing that I can think of in all the world is for God to give me over to my sin. I can't think of anything worse than what this passage is describing. That God would just release us to do what we want to do is an awful thought. But here's the good news. Here's the good news about the righteousness of Jesus. In Christ, I don't have to fear God giving me over because He has promised to keep me. In fact, God will not give me over Because Romans 8.32 says that He gave up His Son. Same word that He used in Romans 1. He uses in Romans 8.32 to say He gave up His Son to death for me. He won't give me over because He gave His Son to death to suffer His wrath in my place so that I never have to be released to my own sinfulness. Oh, friends, run to Jesus this morning. Run to Jesus as the only refuge for your soul. Let's do that now. Oh, Lord, we need You. We are desperate for Your help 
and Your hope and Your glorious Gospel. We thank You that You gave up Your own Son that we might know Your righteousness. Your perfect, spotless, clean righteousness. So Lord, let us be the people who were washed, who were cleansed, who were justified. Oh, come with Your cleansing power. Set Your people free. Oh God, use Your Word to pierce the hearts of the unrighteous, the self-righteous, and all of us who know our great need for the righteousness of Christ. Do Your work. Have Your way. Your grace is amazing. We celebrate You and Your glory and Your grace. And we do so in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing Amazing Grace. My chains are gone.